from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So something else that you note in this story that I think is worth mentioning here, and that's that this officer was part of the mobile reserve unit. Uh, What exactly is that and, and why is that of interest here? Yeah, so uh, both officers, him and his partner, were part of the Mobile Reserve Unit, um, known as MRU, and it's a crew of roving tactical officers with highly militarized training that responds to hotspots. And they're not assigned to any district. They can go anywhere in the city. They're kind of known as the cowboys of the police department. I'm Sarah Fetsky. A St. Louis police officer shot and killed Cortez Bufford on December 12, 2019. Cortez was 24 years old. And here's how his parents, Antoine and Tammy Bufford, remembered him to our producer, Evie Hemphill, last weekend. Cortez was a fun-loving, caring person. He loved all his nieces and nephews. He always said he didn't want any kids uh, because he had enough nieces and nephews, which and we have 14 grandkids. So uh, Cortez loved to play basketball, he loved to play cards, he loved video games, hard worker, because at one time he worked two jobs. He uh, worked for FedEx and UPS, Uh, so he was always a hard worker. He had multiple kind of jobs. He would work with me, cook with me, and uh, we enjoyed loving Cortez with the time that we had with him. Uh, It was very important. Yeah, he was just a fun-loving, caring guy. He you know, never really met a stranger, you know, he would do anything for anybody. Uh, He loved to have fun, he loved to travel, Um, he loved fast cars. Um, He was just a great kid. And that is Tammy and Antoine Bufford. Now, Cortez Bufford's fatal interaction with the St. Louis police is now the subject of a story first published this weekend in The Intercept and also published in today's Riverfront Times. The story details that Cortez and his friend were at a BP station near the corner of Bates in Virginia in St. Louis's Carondelet neighborhood. Cortez was standing behind the store when two men pulled up in a Chevy Tahoe. One told him to, quote, stop pissing in public. Cortez grinned and adjusted his sweatpants. But, the story continues, when one of the men opened the door of the Tahoe, Cortez's eyes widened and fear spread across his face, according to a statement by one of the men. And then he took off running. The two men were police, and Cortez had an interaction with police years before. In April of 2014, six months before the death of Michael Brown, a dash cam video captured him being beaten by officers. That video went viral. His mother, Tammy, says that incident changed his life. Cortez was pulled over by the police in 2014 and then drug out of the car and beat. And they had him on dash cam and... They, um, one of the officers came and said, oh, you're hot. If you're worried about cameras, wait a minute. So then they took, turned the cameras off and they beat him. So after that, he won a small lawsuit against the police department. And from that point forward, the police harassed him. Every, any opportunity, anytime they saw him, they stopped him, they harassed him. 
Did that previous police interaction play a role in Cortez Bufford's death? That's one unsettling question raised by the story now live on The Intercept and also at RiverfrontTimes.com. The story was written by Sam Stecklow and Allison Flowers. And joining us today is Allison Flowers. In addition to being the co-author of this story, she is the director of investigations for the Invisible Institute. That's a journalism production company in Chicago. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So Cortez Bufford apparently took off running after being confronted behind the BP station by a police officer who'd been in that Tahoe. Allison, what happened after that? Well, I think it's important to note that Cortez was afraid of the police. And as you noted, he was a trauma survivor of police violence. So, you know, this was very much a survival instinct and, you know, quite reasonable reaction to what happened. But when he took off running, the officer almost immediately draws his weapon, as a video does show. And then a bit later, Cortez uh, hits the Tahoe or the Tahoe hits him. There are different accounts exactly of, of how that collision happened. But Cortez kept running and he ran into one gangway between two homes. He couldn't clear the fence. He scuffled with the officer. Um, the officer had some scratches on his arms. Uh, and then he ran into the opposite gangway Uh, presumably could not clear the fence again. It was reportedly too dark to see anything. And that's when the officer, without a flashlight, said he saw Cortez, who had no record of violence, I'll say, point a gun at him. And he said he feared for his life uh, by the man he chased down and pointed his gun at thus far. And, um, And he shot him, fired eight times with at least five of those hitting Cortez front and back and an additional graze wound to the fingertip. So just a a very, very tragic incident there in the dark. Um, His mother says that she believes he ran because he feared the police because of the harassment that he'd suffered. As as you said, there was some trauma there. Um, And that goes back to that 2014 incident. But as your story details, the officer who shot him also had some trauma of his own. What do we know about this officer, uh, Lucas Roethlisberger? Yes. Um, So Officer Roethlisberger's identity as the shooter was not publicly known until our reporting, Um, but he is an otherwise well-known officer. So he's in his mid-30s, married with kids. He's been on the force for about 13 years. Um, He's a St. Louis University alum, a very strong runner, uh, track and field standout in high school and college from Nashville originally. Uh, What's unusual about this case is that Officer Roethlisberger has his own traumatic backstories. So in 2010, he was shot by uh, a citizen during a traffic stop and he almost died. He was in a coma, he had strokes, he could have been paralyzed. So this was a very traumatic event for him and his family. And after that shooting that nearly cost him his life, he received the Superintendent's Medal of Valor. He was named Officer of the Year by his colleagues. The man who shot him uh, had no criminal record. He was under the influence of marijuana at the time of the shooting, and his attorney asked for an 18-year sentence. Instead, the man received four life sentences. 
Um, but since then, I think we should point out that Officer Roethlisberger has had a very troubling record of complaints alleging abusive interactions with black citizens. So in a 2016 complaint, he's accused of threatening a, a black teenage boy who was standing on his porch, and he threatened him with tasing if he didn't come down to talk to him. The boy's mother, who was the complainant, she said that the officer was also threatening other boys on the block. Um, in another complaint in 2017, Roethlisberger was among other a group of officers accused of ripping dreadlocks from a man's head um, after kicking in the front door and forcing him to dress in his girlfriend's clothing. Um, in the complaint, the man says that he was beat up and charged with a gun and drugs, even though they knew he was innocent. And in fact, those criminal charges against him did not hold up in court. And then the following year, uh, there was another forced investigation of Officer Roethlisberger. He shot at and missed another black citizen, it was reported. The citizen was running away at the time. Um, I'll say that in that particular case, the citizen uh, pointed an assault rifle at officers before he took off running. Uh, but that same citizen says after he surrendered, he was still beaten and tased by this group of officers. Hmm. So a number of incidents um, in the last few years here for this officer. Do we know if he was ever treated for PTSD after this this terrible shooting where he nearly lost his life? You know, um, we don't know his exact history in that regard, um, but he does note at one point during his video interview with force investigators, which happened about a month after uh, Cortez's killing, him and his partner were interviewed by force investigators. And he did mention that he had not spoken about what happened to anyone other than his lawyer, who was on the scene immediately and actually beat investigators there. And he also spoke to his shrink, according to Officer Roethlisberger. So he was receiving some mental health care, at, at least at that point. Um, depending on what talking to your shrink entails, I think we can assume that that may have involved talking about uh, this shooting. So something else that you note in this story that I think is worth mentioning here, and that's that this officer was part of the mobile reserve unit. Uh, what exactly is that and, and why is that of interest here? Yeah, so uh, both officers, him and his partner, were part of the mobile reserve unit um, known as MRU, and it's a crew of roving tactical officers with highly militarized training that responds to hotspots. And they're not assigned to any district. They can go anywhere in the city. And the unit has been around for about 60 years. Um, when it first came out, it was described as the new shock unit troop to back up district officers in the ceaseless war against crime. Um, another, another article said that they were looking for trouble, but they're kind of known as the cowboys of the police department is what uh, we heard from people familiar with the unit, the jump out squad, and it has a history of unconstitutional policing practices. Um, lots of complaints over the years of descending on people, harassing people, holding guns to their heads, other very heavy handed tactics. Um, they've worked alongside and at times over the over decades uh, functioned as the SWAT team. Um, and, you know, they receive very highly militarized training. Um, and an analysis has shown um, by the Coalition Against Police Crimes and Repression, I should say, found that at least eight shootings over a five year period, eight of those police shootings involved either MRU officers or SWAT team officers. Um, you know, 
style of policing is um, was reviewed by a risk assessment form as sort of lacking a coordinated plan and a, a targeting of, of certain neighborhoods that are under-resourced and already over-police and sort of acting like a, a blunt tool on violent crime that's been shown to be really ineffective. Our guest today is Allison Flowers. Her new investigation, co-written with Sam Stecklow, um, was published in The Intercept this weekend. It's also in today's Riverfront Times. You can read it at riverfronttimes.com. Allison is also the director of investigations for the Invisible Institute. And we're talking about a police shooting that happened here in St. Louis in 2019. It's involved a young man named Cordes Bufford. Um, Allison, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner has not brought any charges against the officer in this case. were you able to learn if charges have been recommended by the officers who investigated this shooting? So the officers who investigate this, it's part of a unit called the Force Investigation Unit that was established in 2014. And they focus solely on criminal investigations of police shootings. And they don't make a recommendation, really. They really just sort of provide findings of what happened. And they're findings of the investigation do indicate that it was a very dark space. The officer had a flashlight but was not using it at the time. It was on his belt and he said he needed both hands in the in the um, incident. And then when his partner came around uh, in the Tahoe, uh, he was trying to cut Cortez off, but he kind of looped back around after the shooting, he said as he approached the gangway to try and find where his partner was, that it was also too dark to see. Now, it's reported that Cortez was carrying a gun, as many trauma survivors do. So we we spoke to one psychologist in this story um, who works with combat veterans and kind of compared race-related trauma to that experience, sort of a hypervigilance, carrying of weapons, not with the intent to use them, but really just to feel safe moving about the world. And as we know, Cortez had no record of violence. And even when he had previously been uh, beaten, kicked, tased by police, he did not attempt to use a weapon at that point. And in the first gangway with the officer, when he was first chased into the first gangway before running across to the other one, he didn't pull his weapon at that point either. Um, so there are some some questions there um, that, that need to be answered. It was a, a very messy scene um, with lots of unexplained uh, details. And so, you know, that will be on Kim Gardner to kind of sort through. But, you know, this case is joined by more than 20 other police shooting investigations that have yet to receive any determination on filing criminal charges. Um, It's a very convoluted system, I'll say, as an outsider here. Uh, But when we look at St. Louis's system of reviewing police shooting investigations, you know, it's it's very convoluted, lots of added layers of review um, and flow charts, if you will, that don't make a lot of sense. And, you know, the bottleneck does appear to be uh, Gardner's office. They did not address that when we posed that to them on multiple occasions. Um, but it, it, you know, there are, there are several cases here kind of crumbling in the pipeline of investigations and families waiting in a, a bureaucratic limbo of unsolved cases. 
And so this is something where they could make a determination here. They could take this case to a grand jury or, or bring criminal charges, or they could close it. They haven't done either thing. And as you point out in your story, there's a backlog here. There's at least 20 cases where that's the case, and they're still open. So we did also reach out to Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. They gave us a statement. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Uh, the Cortez Bufford case is an open investigation which prohibits my office from discussing relevant details. However, my office remains committed to serving justice by providing detailed investigations in the record number of officer-involved shootings that take place in our city. To this end, we have requested additional budgetary resources from the Board of Aldermen and the Mayor to carry out these complex and difficult investigations required in such shootings, as well as services for families involved in these tragic events. You know, when we mentioned we were going to be talking about this today, Allison, on the air, um, we heard from Christine Byers, who's covered this issue a lot as a police reporter. She works for KSDK. And she noted that leaving these things open-ended, it's not just really tough on the families, which which it is. It's also very hard on these cops. She notes that they're kept on this list where their lawyers often advise them not to testify in cases where they make arrests because they don't want their clients to be subject to questioning by prosecutors who are still, in theory, weighing charges against them on these incidents. She says the lack of determination in these situations is harmful to the families and to the officers alike. Do you think she has a point there? Well, I, I certainly had hoped that we would hear from the officers in this story uh, beyond their very extensive video interviews, which you know is a, a very solid way as a journalist to hear the officers' perspective, of course. But you know, this is a, a serious story, and there's a, a serious allegation here um, about what happened to Cortez Bufford. And so, uh, when we reached out to the police department, when we reached out to the police officers directly, and when we reached out to their to their lawyers, we were kind of you know. Um, hit hit with a, a a wall where they're not allowed to really comment on this as it is a pending investigation, and so I can imagine that that is difficult on all of those involved. Um, and you know the, the reluctance to make determinations in these cases uh, does kind of bring this investigative process to a standstill and keeping them indefinitely open with no timeline timeline to conclude anything is is. Um, you know, not a, a great way to conduct things. I mean, Gardner has shown that she's willing to charge officers. Um, she's done so in at least three cases, um, you know, one involving a, an officer who killed another officer in a game of Russian roulette. And I think she recognizes and has pointed out um, to the Missouri Independent and Reveal in uh, an episode there that, you know, it's the system starts out by police investigating the police, right? The force investigation unit is inside the police department and they're investigating their their own colleagues. Um, so, I mean, that that is a problematic that she's pointing out. And she said that she doesn't want to rely on investigations conducted by an officer's friends. And so to that end, it's understandable that she'd really want to do her own thorough investigation. I mean, it took us eight months to investigate this case, but we we started back in September as we approached the anniversary of his death. So we should note that uh, when our producer talked to Cortez Bufford's parents over the weekend, she asked them how the lack of charges or a clear determination of what happened that night had affected their confidence in local authorities. And here's what Antoine Bufford told her. The department has not released anything, has not given us any details of anything that's going on uh, with Cortez's case. Uh, we haven't heard from the defender's office, the prosecuting office, 
at all. Uh, so we would like to have heard some. My wife emailed her, Kim Gardner, have not gotten a response back from Kim Gardner. I don't know if she just too busy or she just hadn't gotten time, but I figured in a year and a half, she should have reached out to us and gave us what she thought about the case. You know, how far she has investigated the case. She said she's for justice and against police brutality. Show us what are you doing? And that is Antoine Bufford. That's the father of Cortez Bufford. Allison, in our final moments here, um, as you said, this has been a very in-depth investigation. There's so many things here. But what do you hope is is the thing that people take away from this investigation? Well, you know, we, we lay out a bunch of evidence that I think is worth people digging into in this very long uh, read. Um, so I won't go into the details of that. Um, but you know, ultimately, this was an absurd law enforcement occasion. This was not an encounter that needed to happen. Buffard appeared to be urinating. We don't even know if he was. And that's not a legitimate crime prevention strategy of the MRU hotspot, hotspot unit. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate right now going in the country about the role of police in civil society. There's the law and order folks, and then there's the growing movement for defunding or abolition. And I just want to emphasize something that you know, hopefully everyone can come to acknowledge because it's the truth. And that is that sometimes police themselves are a known and proven threat to public safety, especially for black and brown citizens like Cortez Bufford. And the world would have kept on turning and Cortez Bufford would have kept on living if police had left him alone when they thought he was urinating behind a building, especially these officers who should have been focused on more important matters. You know, um, the same goes for Eric Garner selling loose cigarettes, ending in his death, and George Floyd's alleged counterfeit bill ending in his death. You know, it's just common sense to reduce these trivial interactions with law enforcement because again and again, they produce deadly outcomes. Well, Allison Flowers, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.